Okay, welcome. Welcome to today's class. We are learning Parshat Noach. Noach, if you read the Chumash recently, you've discovered Noach was a leader in his time. He was an innovator. He built perhaps the first boat ever, and it had a flat bottom. Go figure. But one thing is for sure, Noah has a lot to be told about him. We will today cover a lot. Number one, we're going to discover who else was faced with with the need to fight for their generation and pray on their behalf and save the lives of thousands of others. It was a, a global genocide that Noah could have, should have thwarted, but didn't. Abraham took care of it, and Moses did it even better. Okay, that's coming up. We're going to study some Zohar. Are you ready for Zohar? Zohar is pretty cool. We'll also get to, um, we'll discover how the world, how the flood was a mikvah for the entire world, which is a fascinating idea. 40 days, 40 sa'ah. We'll study some of the intense Hasidic books. We will learn about who is allowed, who is able to judge and from what perspective a person can judge. We will hear some excellent stories and we will conclude um, we'll conclude with how this all brings us closer to having better relationships with the people around us. Let's take a quick look. The way we always run our class, we ask people to read. So we're going to ask the first guest, the most recent joiner of our class. Can we ask Helen? Helen, do you have the source sheets? Oh, you're on mute, Helen, which is okay sometimes. Still on mute. Okay, Helen, when you figure out how to get out of mute, we will get you to read. In the meanwhile, let's gonna let's move straight over to um, Robert. Robert, will you start for us the first section? This is a pasuk from Chumash. Actually, multiple verses from the Chumash. I put the link for the source notes if you don't have it. Robert, take it away. Okay, am I am I unmuted here? Yes, I am. Okay, so uh, God said to Noah, "I have decided to put an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with lawlessness because of them. I am about to destroy them with the earth." Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make it an ark with compartments and cover it inside and out with pitch. And behold, I'm about to bring the flood waters, flood waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh under the sky in which there is breath of life. Everything on earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark with your sons, your wife and your son's wives. Noah did so just as God commanded him, so he did. So we were all wondering, why did God see the need to wipe out all of humanity, all of the animals, all of everything? What was that all about? And the simple explanation is, like the verse just read, because the earth is filled with lawlessness, lawlessness, because of all these people. They were doing some terrible things. The Torah describes um, vaguely what they were up to, and the explanations on the Torah, like Rashi, get involved on a very deep level into all of this, and it's actually worth looking into. It's really fascinating. Um, So when you get there, you'll get there. But um, what does happen is pay attention to how does Noah respond to the notification. Can you imagine if you got a notice on your cell phone that says, 
I will be destroying the earth and you are the only survivor. How would you react? Would you just like hang out and like not do anything? Or would you like, would you do something? Would you petition? Would you reply? Noah doesn't reply. And that is the most fascinating thing in this story. And we will be paying attention to that greatly. Let's take a look at source two. And we're going to look how there was another Jew, there was another leader of his generation, Abraham. Abraham was, in, was um, told that the city of Sodom was going to be wiped out. And he could have stayed silent like Noah. But instead, he presents to God a petition. He says, why would you exterminate the, the, the people? Maybe there are 50 righteous people. Oh, not 50. Maybe there are 20, 40. Maybe there are 30. Maybe there are 20. Maybe there are 10. When it gets to 10 and there are still no righteous 10 people in the town of Sodom and, Amor and Gomorrah, that is when Abraham backs off and allows God to continue with what was actually necessary. Now, if you are wondering how bad the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were, well, let's wait a couple of weeks until we get to that section. But so bad were they that there are, um, there are behaviors today that are named after them. Um, things that people shouldn't be doing. And it's named after them. And that's how um, low they were. Okay, but that was source two. So if you read it while I was talking, that's awesome. Let's move straight into source three. We have another piece from the Torah, a quote about Moses. When did Hashem, when did God tell Moses that he was going to have to annihilate the nation? It was at the time of the golden calf. Go, Moses is up on top of the mountain. The Jews are all at the bottom of the mountain. 40 days um, have passed. And it's the, third, it's the 40th day in the morning. And the Jews see a vision of Moses as if he is dead in a casket. And, they, and this is a vision created by, the, um, by the, sat, the Satan. And so the Jews say to themselves, we have to create a new leader. And so they do. They make this golden calf experience to which um, God says to Moses, he says, hurry down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have acted basely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I enjoined upon them. They made themselves a molten calf. They bowed low to it and sacrificed to it. And they're saying, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so God says to Moses, well, now we're going to get rid of all of them. And I will make you a great nation. Last words of the second paragraph over there. So Moses says back to Hashem. Pay attention to this third paragraph. Moses says, let not your anger, O Lord, blaze forth against your people whom you delivered from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Let not the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he delivered them only to kill them off in the mountains and annihilate them from the face of the earth. Here is, he continues with his petition, turn from your blazing anger and renounce the plan to punish your people. Now, if you will forgive their sin, well and good. But if not, Erase me from the record which you have written. And these are verses in the Torah. You can find them in Exodus chapters 12. And a bit of it is in chapter 32. What do you see? You see this contrast between Noah 
Abraham and Moses. Noah, how did he protect the people? Not at all. How did, Mo how did Abraham protect his people? He petitioned if there are righteous people, save them. If there aren't righteous people, what if it's only me? Whatever, it's not so important. Moses said, we'll even save. Let's save everybody, even, even the lowest of the low, who, who perhaps might, God forbid, deserve. Nevertheless, we're gonna, Moses is ready to risk his life. Note how he says, wipe me out of your book. Right? Take me out of the Torah. Exclude me from the Torah, but don't get rid of the people. And that is, those are the three sections from the Torah. Let's move straight on to um, uh, Noah versus Abraham, a piece from the Rebbe, which begins with the Zohar. Let's find out which page it's on. It is on page, here it is, it's on page six. So we'll ask, Juan, will you please read for us Noah versus Abraham on page six? Okay, so while Juan gets there, the Zohar tells us that the great flood is called the waters of Noah. Why? Because in a sense, it's his fault that the flood actually happened. Let's see what we're going to discover here is how the Torah, how the Zohar uh, coming up in a moment. It's Go, for Go for it. The Zohar states that uh, there were three writers, righteous individuals who lived among an immortal society, Noah, Abraham, and Moshe. In the generation of Noah, with the uh, advent of the great flood, Noah prayed for the salvation of his family, and himself. He didn't think about the rest of the humanity, only when approached and asked about uh, his construction of, of an ark, did he rebuke the people of his generation and say that Hashem planned to bring a flood and destroy humanity. The Sohar is critical of the fact that uh, he waited to be approached and uh, didn't make it in his business to reach out to them. Excellent. Thank you, Juan. And take, please, Juan, read for us as well the same, the Zohar in discussion in the following paragraph. Not say to Noah, I have decided to put an end of, to all flesh. Noah replied, What will you do to me? Not say, I will establish my, co my covenant with you. Make yourself an ark of uh, gopher wood. Noah didn't pray for humankind. The rain fell and, huma yeah, and humankind was exterminated. Therefore, the verse called the water, the waters of Noah. It's, it is identified his word and he is responsible for, responsible for them. He failed to pray for the entire world. And those are the, uh, the important words in this paragraph, the last three lines of that paragraph. It is definitely, therefore the verse calls it the waters of Noah. It is definitely his waters and he's responsible for them. Why? He failed to pray for the entire world. Oh my. 
And so what do, what do we do with this? Well, we, we're going to contrast Noah with, um, with the others, of course, but we're also going to exonerate Noah. We're not looking to get him in trouble over here. We're going to exonerate him at the end. Let's get um, Suzanne. Can you read for us, please, um, the, the paragraph on the top of page seven? Both paragraphs, please. Page seven. Okay. Avraham didn't wait to be approached. Rather, Avraham called in the name of Hashem. He reached out and spread his message of monotheism throughout the world. However, his goal was to create a society of righteous people. He didn't occupy himself with the well-being of the non-virtuous. When Hashem decreed that Sodom be destroyed, he said to Hashem, Perhaps there are righteous individuals inside the city in whose merit the city shouldn't be destroyed. When he understood that there weren't even 10 righteous individuals, Abraham returned to his place and he had no more complaints. So you see right there that, no, that Abraham is looking out to protect, but only for the righteous, not for anyone else. He would have saved the entire city if he had found the righteous, but no one else could, could sway, could be part of his ploy to save the people. But let's take a look at how Moshe, how Moses acted. Please, Susanne. Moshe, however, as the faithful shepherd of the Jewish people, behaved differently. When the Jewish people sinned, Moshe demanded of Hashem to forgive them all, even the non-virtuous among them. Instead of following the example of Noah, who prayed only for his own family, Moshe demanded of Hashem the very opposite. If you don't forgive the Jewish people, erase me from your book. And continue for us the next paragraph, please. Moshe placed himself in danger for the sake of the Jewish people. There was no logical reason to pray for those who intentionally sinned with the golden calf, yet Moshe risked his own place resolutely and devotely for them as well. This behavior is dubbed by the Zohar, the Torah scroll, to be, I can't read it. Um, this is the correct path to follow after giving of the Torah. This is a true faithful shepherd. Excellent. Thank you. And so here you go. So now we see this contrast between Noah, Abraham, and Moses. And Moses seems to have been the most dedicated, even for the people who seemingly did not deserve. He was ready to risk his life to protect them. And that's what the Zohar in source number five, it tells us. Um, he says, Moses acted in the most perfect way. Let's see, the one who acted perfectly was Moses. Because as soon as Hashem said to him, they have turned aside quickly from the way, they have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it. The next words are, and Moses implored God. And the verse continues until he says, if you will forgive their sin, well and good, but if you will not erase me from the record which you have written. Even though... They had all sinned. He did not budge from there until he told him, until Hashem told him, I have pardoned, pardoned according to your word. Abraham did not pay attention 
unless there was a righteous man among them. In this regard, there was, an, there was nobody as decent as Moses who was a faithful shepherd. And that is ultimately the great praise for Moses. Let's take a look at this last section from this talk of the Rebbe. And we'll ask, Alan, can you read for us, please? Um, you have us. The proper path in our day. The leader of a generation, especially after the giving of the Torah, endangers himself for the well-being of his people without distinction, regardless of whether they are deserving or not. He doesn't lock himself into an ark with his wife and children while leaving the rest of his flock to their fate without caring to pray for them. As the Zohar states, that is why the flood is called in his name, Noah's flood. A true shepherd of his flock places himself in harm's way with genuine self-sacrifice for the sake of his people. This applies even to a generation like the Israelites who left Egypt, about whom Rabbi Akiva said they do not have a portion in the world to come. Even though Rabbi Akiva was a great lover of Israel who taught that loving your fellow is a great precept of the Torah. Moshe, the faithful shepherd, sacrificed himself for their sake and remained behind in the desert with them. The Midrash states on the verse, he carried out Hashem's judgment and his decisions for Israel. That Moshe remained with his generation in the desert in order to take them along when he ultimately leaves. Thank you, Alan. So we've got this, uh, this window into what the leader of a generation should be up to. And, you know, in our classes, we've discussed in the past what leaders of a generation kind of what we hope and expect from them. But this is the ultimate example. In the contrast, one leader locks himself up. He takes care of himself and his family. Make sure he has his animals and he's done. Moses, in the, on the other hand, will risk his life, will risk his position in history, risk all of his fame and fortune to keep the people going. And not only that, we see at the end of Moses' day, he's buried in the, land, in, in the desert. He doesn't choose to enter the land. He chooses to stay in the desert. So that he'll be there with his people when they are ready to go. That concludes section A. Before we go on to section B, anyone with a question, a comment, or a disagreement? Susan, Susan, go for it. Well, I'm thinking perhaps Moses had more of a relationship with God. He's had all the years since, I mean, think about it, 80, 80 years old being chosen to with the task of leading Jews out of Israel and uh, he had the um, he had that he had that relationship with him and perhaps he felt uh, perhaps he felt more confident in what his outcome would be because he he would have gone down with the boat you know he but he figured it's worth to try but maybe it's because he had that confidence and maybe um with noah my understanding noah was a, a good man a righteous man of his time and was the best at his time so maybe he did not have the ability in him to question or to seek for others he wanted to make sure that he's to take care of his family and his own and follow what god wanted him to do 
but he what maybe was not confident in 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 disputing or seeking out. I don't know. You've touched on a great topic, right? You've touched on some really important notes. But in 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 your comment, you just you said the very same notion that this that our conversation presents. Moses took care of the people. He did whatever it took. He was ready to risk it. And mm -hmm. he did. With Noah, a good Noah with wanted good to protect his own pocket. Yeah. Noah wanted to be safe. And our question is on Noah. And this is the question we're going to get into in section two. How come Noah did not push harder? Why didn't he try at all? Why didn't he try at all? Something, something small. Before we get there, let's ask Juan, what's, your, what's the question? And then we'll go on. I think it's a matter of responsibility, scope. Uh, I think uh, Noah has a small responsibility scope. Abraham has a bigger responsibility scope, but definitely uh, Moses has the, the biggest responsibility scope because he he knew the Torah. He received the Torah at the Sinai, and uh, he realized uh, the Jewish people as one body, and uh, he felt as part of this body. So. So he, he cares uh, about the Bene Israel as uh, himself. Is what I think. Okay, and you're and in a way you're right that um, that Moses has a much greater scope of responsibility than all of the other people than certainly Noah and, and Abraham. Moses was appointed as the leader of a nation, and he had to take care of them. And that's why we praise him for being the awesome leader that he was. At the same time, it seems like the other people could have stepped up just a little more. And certainly Noah, who is our conversation, could have stepped up altogether. He could have just said something and he didn't say anything. And that's what brings us here. Because we've seen how Abraham tried to save the people, the righteous ones. We've seen how Moses gave his life. How did Noah say nothing, not even a peep? Would you like to suggest that Noah was self-centered? He's concerned about himself. Noah is concerned about himself. Get me and my family out of the um, out of the out of the line of danger, and we'll be fine. Is that perhaps what we'd like to say? Let's take a look at insight that the Rebbe will bring about the flood, what it did to the world, and how the before flood Noah had no inkling of what repentance might mean altogether. That's what's coming up. I gave away the secrets, but hang in there because it gets better. So let's ask, where are we up to? Let's go back to Reb Shmuel. Will you please read for us, um, read for us, the flood was a mikvah, and also read the quote from Torah Or, please. The flood was a mikvah. It is known that the purpose of the flood was to purify the world, and therefore the reign of the flood was for a period of 40 days, 
similarly to the concept of purification accomplished by the 40 seah, liquid measurement, of a ritual mikvah bath. And this affected a general purification in the world, which helped the purification accomplished by the Egyptian exile in preparation for the giving of the Torah. And the purification of the world done by the flood is the idea of tshuva, repentance. The purpose of the flood was not only to bring destruction to the world, but also to purify it. For seemingly the whole concept of the flood is not understood, that if it were only to remove and destroy the sinful people, why was it necessary to such a great tumult? Why, in but, such a, single, in but a single moment, could God have removed them even without the flood? Rather, the flood had in fact come to purify the world, as it is said, for the whole earth was filled with robbery and was greatly corrupt and was in need of purification. And for this purpose, precisely, the flood came upon the world, being that it is the idea of water in order to purify the unclean. And as the mikvah bath of Fordesea, which purifies the unclean, similarly came the flood to purify the whole world. And as it is written, and I will sprinkle pure water upon you so that you may become cleansed. Awesome. Let's take a moment to touch on what is a mikvah. I imagine everyone here has heard the word. A mikvah is a containment of water. That's the physical location. But its, part, its place in the Jewish lifestyle is actually very important. The mikvah is used for anyone to go from stage to stage. So a potential convert must enter into a mikvah and that is the moment where they then can finally become part of the tribe. It's the dipping into the mikvah and coming out which allows one to change their status. Similarly, a woman after her menstrual cycle has been expelling a chance of life. Now that that is over, she is able to cultivate new life. Between death and the new life, the woman goes to mikvah. Fascinatingly, if a person converts to another religion, there are opinions that say that when they want to return actively to Judaism, you can never lose your soul and your inherent rights to Judaism. But when the person wants to return to Judaism, there are opinions that warrant entering into a mikvah in order to, this time it's not changing status, but this time perhaps it's refreshing your state, cleansing, removing an, a, a previous status and coming into a new status. The world needs a mikvah. Well, in this case, the people had been so vile and the animals had been so misbehaving. The world needed to cleanse itself. And that's what we discover from this piece of the Torah Or. The Torah Or is telling us the whole earth was filled with robbery and was greatly corrupt and it needed purification. And so what does God do? 
he drops water and opens up the, the, the flow of water from the earth and overflows the earth in water for 40 days. 40, 40 days is the same amount, the number 40 is the same amount of uh, measurements. You need 40 sa'ah, sa'ah is a measurement. You need 40 sa'ah in order to create a kosher mikvah. So 40 days, 40 sa'ah, that is the connection there. And we even have a verse from Ezekiel, I will sprinkle pure water upon you so that you may become cleansed. So what you see here is that this is a method for the world to clean itself. Let's find out what to do with all of this. This is good information. Let's use it. So let's ask, um, Susan, can you please read for us the Rebbe Strict Divide? And that goes all the way through to the end of page 12. Hmm. Okay, okay. Uh, a strict divide. The point is as follows. Before the flood, there was no element of repentance in the world, but rather all that existed was one of the two extremes. On the other hand, in every generation, there were righteous individuals. Who kept mitzvah at least the six mitzvot, which were given to the first person? Adam, as we find that Adam learned Torah with his son, how do you say, Shias? And Shias passed it on to his sons after him. From generation to generation, and in addition to that, since they kept mitzvot, they must also have studied Torah for learning brings to action. And on the other hand, this was second extreme. The world was filled with robbery, but the teshuva element was not in the world then. Similarly, the Talmud in Tractate Sanhedrin states that Noah was righteous, was the righteous one, would reprove them and they would shame him meaning that Noah's reproof was not successful in arousing them to repent and return to ways of good. And the reason for this, before the flood, the nature and materiality of the world was one of greater strength and intensity. So there was no spiritual service of repentance whose purpose is purification and elevation. The whole idea of repentance only came about via the flood, which affected purification within the world. So they didn't have anything such as a mikvah prior to the flood. That's right. They did not have anything like the mikvah. And they didn't have, there wasn't the notion of changing one's ways of mending one's path. If you knew, you knew. If you were involved, if you had received the Torah, if you knew the right way to behave, you were in. If you didn't, you weren't. And there were people who had no idea. And so what you discover is that here, Noah could have said, he could have said something, but Noah didn't pray at all. You might want to say, hey, I'll, what do you mean? Noah at least, um, um, you know, told the people off. 
right? Like it says in that second paragraph, the Talmud tells us that no other righteous one would reprove him and they would shame him, right? He was reproving them because he knew they were misbehaving and they shamed him because they didn't even understand what was wrong. Noah could have prayed for them, but he didn't. Let's take a look at the continuation. Who can learn merit on others? Please, Alan, read for us who can learn merit on others. And by prefacing the words of the Zohar, that the flood was called on Noah's name, for he hadn't prayed for the people of his generation. For seemingly it is incomprehensible. Why did he not pray for the people of his generation and refine some merit for them? To explain, according to the above mentioned, that before the flood there was no repentance element in the world, and since by Noah himself the whole traction called repentance was not around, therefore he could not look for some merits for his contemporaries, because to be merit seeking about others, one must experience this matter himself. As it is well known, the story about the Baal Shem Tov that one of his disciples did not have the virtue of highlighting the merits. And the Baal Shem Tov made it so that this disciple would arrive on a late hour on Friday evening, approaching nightfall. And when he saw how great the difficulty in keeping Shabbat could be, then he too began to look for merits in his fellow men. Awesome. Thank you. So what have we, what have we got? I think the, the most, perhaps the central text in this one is that middle paragraph. There was no repentance before the flood. Since there was no re repentance, Noah couldn't tell his contemporaries, the other people in, around him in his society to change their ways. It didn't exist. The notion didn't exist. And so that leaves us, it's a similar story and we'll get to this story a bit later. A person can be completely unaware of somebody else's circumstances. And when one doesn't understand another person's circumstances, well, yeah, they might be judging. They don't understand it. They're not available to be, to, um, they're, not, they're not able to care. They're not able to be sensitive to that because they just don't know any better. And that's an important life lesson. Lots of the people that, that we notice judging or that or the, lots of the situations and circumstances where we judge is often because we don't know any better about the situation. Think about the quote from the ethics of our fathers, which says, Don't judge your fellow until you stand in his shoes. Okay, let's take a look. Noah's simple life. Uh, Juan, will you read for us, please, the coming two paragraphs? According to the above, it becomes understood since Noah himself did not experience the element of repentance, he could not say about the merit in others of his generation. For one who has not who has not had difficulties or obstacles, or at least intense difficulties, cannot all comprehend how it, it is possible to not listen to God and therefore cannot highlight or see the merits of others. This is all uh, on the parts of uh, the period before the blood, when uh, 
there was still no precedent of repentance in the world. But uh, on the part of the period after the flood, when the element of repentance had, had begun, it became a concept that, uh, like the words of Noah, this shall be to me, just as I swore that the words of Noah would never again pass over the earth. So have I sought uh, not to be wrathful with your not rebuke you as it will be, it will come to be in the days of the future, the dead redemption, which will be preceded, the brought about uh, through repentance. I think we've got something very fantastic over here and it's worth paying attention to. Thank you, Juan. Did you notice how there is a, there is a, a series of events the world is in strife. There's either good or bad. It's, it's white or black. There's, the world is in strife. God brings the flood. And now suddenly a person is able to repent. Prior, there was no repentance. Perhaps we can say, perhaps we can say, um, Perhaps we can say that the that God Himself introduced Teshuvah into the world. God Himself created a, a new space where now a person can traverse the white and black and go into the gray gray space in between, where originally there was either sin or righteousness, and now God says. I'm changing the setup of this entire experience and introducing the mikvah, introducing repentance, introducing a new lifestyle and introducing a new way. In a way, maybe, maybe, maybe this is Hashem's shiva. Maybe. The mikvah. Hashem puts the world into the mikvah, takes it out and says, now now that the world has repented, now that the world has returned to its proper ways, now everyone else can do that too. Now everyone else has that ability. That's a suggestion. Okay. Um, let's, ask, um, let's ask Diana to read for us the last two paragraphs over here, how to judge someone. How to judge someone. It is in this manner, too, that the genuine element of judgment and decision making is performed, as was explained in the talk of the Simchus Torah 31 years ago, that it is not in a way that the judge sees only the deed itself, but he must also contemplate and dig, and dig deeper to find the reasons or symptoms that led to the commission of this action. Indeed in this manner will be in the future era. The true decision-making and judgment by Mashiach, as it is written, righteousness will be the girdle around 
his loins, and therefore he will judge the destitute with righteousness. That is, he will find merits also for those who are in the status and the condition of poor in the spiritual sense. From Shabbos Parsha Noah. So you want me to continue? Source seven. Just a moment. In that in that first paragraph, we see a person, the judge, whoever the judge is, all he sees is the environment, but he doesn't see what's actually going, what actually happened. <laughs> you know, there are there are lots of like stories that go around on social media and on the internet of you know a, a policeman who found a uh, you know found a kid stealing in a store and he and instead of just you know taking him for the repercussions the policeman asks him like what's up he finds out the story and turns out the kid is you know on and maybe not eating for a couple days or doesn't have a normal home to go to and instead the policeman buys him the meal the policeman saves saves this kid's opportunity and we have many such stories all throughout you know all throughout the the most recent times and the same thing, there's, uh, there's this judge, I think somewhere in Massachusetts, who streams his court cases like on the internet. And you can watch how people come in with, with, uh, you know, with regular domestic issues, regular problems. Like, um, and and instead, of, instead of the police, instead of the judge tell, telling them you're, you're gonna sit in jail for what you've done, the judge gives them contextual repentance methods. A bit like public service. But he does that by looking into the context, looking into the reasons, the symptoms that, le that leads to what happens. Now, we mentioned the story before, and an opportunity of a story is always worthwhile. So the story is told about a, the, 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 young, the young time of the great... Magid of Zlochov. If you can pronounce Zlochov, you are an Ashkenazi Jew. Zlochov. So Zlochov is somewhere in maybe Ukraine. I don't know. And the great Rabbi Yechiel Michal lived there as a young boy, as a young man. And he would sit in the synagogue, in the study hall, and he would study all day. One day he's sitting there in his corner and a, a uh, perhaps a, a simple Jew, a simple Jew who is a wagon driver, uh, comes running into the synagogue and he's looking for the rabbi and he finds the rabbi and he's, he's contrite and he's in tears and he says to the rabbi, I committed a terrible sin. I desecrated the holy Shabbat. How can I atone for my transgression? So the rabbi says, tell me the story. What happened to you? So the fellow explains, he says, last Friday, I was returning from the marketplace. I had a wagon load of all the good stuff that I needed. And I'm on the way through the forest and I took the wrong turn and I lost my way. And until I got out of the forest, the sun had already set. But, but still, I was so consumed by my issue, by needing to salvage my, my merchandise that I ignored the holy day. I didn't realize that the Shabbat had already started and I came home and only then I realized, oh my gosh, it's already Shabbos and I drove my wagon on Shabbos. I violated the holy day. 
The rabbi looks at this fellow and he sees how down he is. He sees how broken he is already. And he says to him, my son, the gates of repentance are never closed. Donate a pound of candles to the synagogue and your transgression will be forgiven. Now, the young prodigy Rabbi Michal is sitting on the side and he hears this conversation and he hears the rabbi give us a solution to this villager just to bring a pound of candles. So Rabbi Echiel Michal says to himself, a pound of candles to, to atone for breaking Shabbos? It's, he doesn't think it's appropriate. Well, the, the next Friday comes along, and where's Rabbi Yechiel Michal? He's sitting in the shul, and he sees how the villager comes in. And as the villager comes in with his candles and he lights them in front of the, at the front of the synagogue so they should give a lot of light, as he puts it down, a stray dog comes running in, grabs the, um, grabs the candles and runs away with them and eats them. Now, don't worry that it's paraffin. In those days, candles were made from lard, so they were edible. Okay. Well, the, the, the villager, now he thinks that God hasn't accepted his, his repentance. So he runs to the rabbi and he says, Rabbi, what's going on? Pray for me. How come it doesn't work? How come the, the dog is eating my candles? So the rabbi says, listen, it happens. This time, it happened like this. Next week, you'll bring another, another set of candles. And with God's help, it'll, it'll all work out. Okay? Next week, what happens? He puts them down. And as he puts the candles down into... The um in the proper place, and he lights them. It all works. But then, when it comes to the end of the um, when it gets to the end of of the, how do you call it? To, to right before Shabbos is starting. So now suddenly a wind comes and it extinguishes his candles, and the villager is standing in shul at the time. But it's too late, and he can't fix it. And now the villager is again upset. This time, he comes to the he comes to the rabbi and he says, "Rabbi, like a you know something's wrong. Help me out." So the rabbi says, "You know what? You need to go to the great Hasidic Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tov. You go to the Baal Shem Tov and ask the Baal Shem Tov to help you with the solution." So he does. Sunday morning, he gets on his wagon. He drives to Mezhibuz. He arrives at the town of the Baal Shem Tov. He goes in to get a, a, a meeting with the Baal Shem Tov and he says, tells the Baal Shem Tov his story, how he violated the Shabbos, how he feels so bad about it, how the rabbi told him to bring candles, how his first candles were eaten by a dog, how the second ones, the wind blew them out, how he feels so bad about this all. And now the Baal Shem Tov thinks and he gives it some time and then he says, you know what? You have a great path you're doing the right thing, but somebody else is disturbing your path to Teshuva. So the Baal Shem Tov tells him, this week it's all going to work out. But in the meanwhile, when you do get back down to back, back to your town, 
please deliver this letter to the young Rabbi Yechiel Michal who sits in your synagogue. The villager goes home, he delivers his letter. Rabbi Yechiel Michal opens the letter and he discovers a personal invitation from the Baal Shem Tov. Please come spend the holy day of Shabbat with me in my synagogue. A personal invitation from a great rabbi like that. He gets in, the, he hires a wagon driver and he goes, off he goes, he's on the way. And suddenly it's, it's Friday morning and they're, you know, they're scheduled. They have a great ETA. They're going to get there well before midday and they get lost. They get lost. And then they finally find their way. Something breaks and something else happens. Something else happens. By the time it's sunset on Friday night, he still hasn't arrived at, his, at the town. He hasn't arrived at his destination. So he gets out of the wagon and he starts to trudge. He's walking and he walks and he walks and he only arrives into town a couple hours into the holy day. Immediately he makes his way to the synagogue and how does he feel? He's downtrodden, he's upset, he feels bad. He, he's not in the right spirits. He walks into the synagogue and immediately he's greeted by the Baal Shem Tov. And the Baal Shem, Tov, the Baal Shem Tov says to him, Shabbat Shalom, he says, good Shabbos. Come in, come inside, warm yourself by the fire. And immediately he says to him, you, Rabbi Echiel Michal, you never tasted sin. You don't know what it means to transgress. You don't even know what it means to nearly transgress. You're an innocent guy. You could have never understood and comprehended the remorse that a Jew feels at having transgressed the will of his father in heaven. But now I trust that you understand something of the agony of that villager. Believe me, his remorse alone more than any than more than anything else just feeling bad atoned for his unwitting transgression my friends that's a story that's a story of seeing how when you're not in when you're in the wrong place you can't understand the other guy Rabbi Chiel Michal just simply couldn't understand the circumstances of his fellow Let's take a look. Source number seven. We'll ask Diana again. Will you read for us, please? Source number seven. And with that, um, the conclusion. Please. From the talk of Simchus Torah, 1929, section 39. The conduct of Mashiach, says the prophet Isaiah, will be such that he will be imbued with a spirit of fear for Hashem. He will not need to judge by what his eyes see, nor decide by what his ears hear. But rather, with righteousness, he will judge the destitute and will decide with fairness for the humble on, of the earth. The most unique thing is that he will not judge according to what he sees with his eyes, nor will he prove 
according to what his ears hear, but will justly judge the poor and prove those who are fallen of the spirit. That is the conduct and the mannerism of Mashiach, one set above nature. The law and judgment of people in general is only according to what they see with their eyes and what they will hear with their ears. When one judges another, both when the judgment is a viable one, open to the public, and also when one judges the other in his heart alone, then the elements of law and morals are only according to what he sees and hears. He does not enter the life of the one on the judgment stand. He does not consider his status and condition. That is, he does not enter into his inner life and does not delve into, into the reasons that brought him to such a type of life. He judges him solely on the face of which he sees and hears, and not accordingly to the condition and the status of the judge. Such a sentence or decision is not a real sentence. Such a sentence is too dry, being as it's built on life foundations. The real judgment is such that the judge must put himself in the place of the one being judged. He should and must know all the reasons that brought the fellow being judged to such a situation. The Talmudic sage Hillel's stern warning, do not judge your friend until you reach his place. When you see that someone has failed in the inability to stand a particular test or a tribulation, do not judge him until you have passed such a test yourself. This great warning is the word it is the word of Hashem. We can judge or decide only when the judge puts himself in the place of the one being judged and lives at the individual. Thank you, Diana. You're welcome. And that what a way to wrap up this conversation. How better than a judge can only judge when they really understand the person they are judging. Not just their deeds, not just their behaviors, but the holistic person. All of the things that happened to them, all of the things that brought them to this point in their lives. And I mean, who, could, who will be a better judge than Mashiach? Mashiach is the judge who will judge by smell. He'll, he'll be able to perceive what happened? You'll be able to perceive the right thing that could have happened, should have happened, and, and how this person needs to be pushed forward to be even better. So just before we open up for questions, a quick summary. First, we contrasted between Noah, Abraham, and Moses. We discovered that Noah didn't petition for his people. However, Abraham and Moses did. And we thought, how come? That's, it's, no, it's no good that, Moses, that, Mo, that Noah did not. We recognized how great Moses is, that he did petition for his people, how much care he did take for his people. But at the same time, where was Noah? Then we, then we went through, um, hold on, I'm getting there. 
We went, we understood what was prior to the flood, what was after the flood. What did the flood introduce into society that allowed the people to change their path? Before the flood, there was no teshuva. Post-flood, now everyone can do teshuva. You even suggested that perhaps this is a God's moment of teshuva. And from all of this, we now understand that Noah was not in a position to pray for anyone. How can Noah pray for someone now? They were doing all that they were capable of doing. And the same thing, Noah didn't know that there was a better way for anyone to be. Either you're this way or you're you're that way. Noah only judged based on the information that he had and based on the holistic context that he had. And he definitely wasn't going to put down the other people into a position where they did not belong. And we discussed that story with the Baal Shem Tov and Rabbi Yechiel Michal, how a person can not understand the other guy's circumstances. And he's got to live it first, and that allows him to understand the best. This, my friends, is a lesson for us in our day-to-day, all the time. How often is it that you walk past someone and you wonder, that guy. What is that one up to? What's going on? Why is it like this? Why is it like that? I mean, you guys are all Bobbies and Zadies. Like uh, sometimes you look at your at your, your in-laws, your daughter-in-law, your son-in-law, you say, what's the deal? You're not going to say it out loud. But you think it. Of course, your kids are 100% perfect, nothing to worry about. But the son-in-law, ah, now we can start making comments. Right? But when we look at Noah and we learn about the holistic judgment method, we don't judge a person for stuff that we don't understand. Maybe there's something happening that I can't understand. That's new to me. And this, my friends, is the lesson from our study together. Let us take on a view of others, not just in a good life, but let's not judge them. Let's not even judge them until we understand them. Let us understand them better. And I wish you all a good Shabbos, and I thank you for joining us tonight.